If they seem confusing, it's because they are. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hi there, Bob Squad. It has been a while, but welcome back to Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. Bro, it hasn't been that long. Well, when was the last time that we have crusted? I don't know, but you just said you were me. I know. Well, I'm the real Andrew Smith. Um, I guess. I am joined by my co-host, Caleb Castro. Um, because identity theft is not a joke. Millions of people suffer annually. You just became a statistic. Well, it was predestined. So what have you been doing, Caleb? I ask myself that every day. Um, short answer is seminary. I have moved into my final year at Mid-America, and uh, it has been, uh, it's been hectic, I feel uh, I blinked my eyes and the semester was over, uh, and today uh, that we are recording, I have actually just finished my last finals for the semester, which makes... Final final. Yes. Which makes this upcoming semester my final semester of seminary. Final final final. That's right. Ultimate, not penultimate. Yeah, and all the while I've been running to and from uh, churches throughout the country uh, of the good old U.S. of A., Filling pulpits, helping out where I can. And I am looking forward to a nice little break next week. Andrew, what have you been up to? Well, the last time that we checked in, I was in Alaska. I am no longer in Alaska. My time there has come to an end. I, too, have been traveling around doing pulpit supply at various United Reform churches, helping out where there's need and uh, getting ready for my upcoming classical exams, which will be in the spring of 2022, Lord willing. Yeah. Yeah. So moving across the country and studying for a very, very, very long process that would put you towards ordination. No big deal. So all of this is a perfect storm. That means it's been a couple of months since we were last able to record Bobcast. It's true. We are thankful we have received some messages and people asking uh, when the next episode will come out. We're really thankful for the care and people interested in uh, listening to Bobcast and whatever it is that we do here. Our, our ramblings. Um, Indeed. We're glad you care, but sorry we let you down. <laughs> yeah, this is where we keep expectations low. <laughs> because I just figure we will waste your time in whatever way we can, when we can. So not only did we go away for a long time, but we left on a terrible cliffhanger <laughs> last time we were with you. We were right in the middle of talking about the Mosaic Covenant, and we were specifically dealing with some issues regarding the republication thesis. Is the Mosaic Covenant a republication of the Covenant of Works in some sense? So, if you haven't heard it, or since it's been so long, even if you have heard it, you might want to go back to our previous episode and check out what we said before. Or you could listen to my very quick 0.3 second uh, synopsis of everything we've spoken of for the past several episodes right now. Ready? And... All right, did you get all that? Perfect. <laughs> 
Good. Now that we have that established, let's get back to it. So, yeah, as a little reminder there, uh, republication. What is it? As Andrew was already talking about there, the Mosaic Covenant is in some sense a renewed proclamation of the original covenant of works arrangement in the garden with Adam, now put forward to national Israel as something of a new Adam, preparing to dwell in this typological kingdom, the promised land, a new Eden of sorts. Uh, And the way that they live in it is according to a works principle. This idea of a simple justice that man must be rewarded for obedience and cursed for disobedience. Those are the general statutes and function of the law. The only thing is man cannot earn salvation now because of the fall through obedience. So the blessedness earned has to be temporal, whereas the cursings tend to also be temporal cursings. So these things have to do with, say, prosperity, general health, uh, peace, as opposed to militaristic campaigns and war, famine, sickness, occupation, and exile. So long as Israel is nationally as a whole obedient to the law given to them, they will enjoy their stay in the land and blessings of God. Basically, if they obey, they get to stay. And if they don't, they go into exile. To be fair, we're putting it in very broad general terms, trying to keep it into the short posted stamp version. Again, go back to the previous episodes for a bit more of a larger treatment. As of now, though, we we have this question of, uh, we had mentioned this phrase, works principle. What is this works principle? What are meritorious works that don't merit salvation? What is merit? How, How do we find these things? And that is the question undergirding this republication idea, at least in this particular form. So the works principle is essentially how the Mosaic Covenant in this view is argued to be a covenant of works. That while the substance of the covenant, they would typically say, is a covenant of grace, there is this works principle, this way in which it looks like and functions like a covenant of works regarding land tenure. So they're given the law They keep the law, and by doing that, they gain merit. Basically, merit is your just payment, your just reward for what you do, and that is the remaining in the land. That is what they've merited. Or if they don't, then that's what they have failed to merit, and so they are spat out. Uh, So we took up this view before, and we were looking at various texts and arguments surrounding these issues, And just at the end of last time, we came to the book of Galatians because it's very important in these arguments and dealing with this issue of republication. And part of the importance in that text in particular uh, also comes into consideration of, if you will, proof texts or historical basis for uh, republication. You know, that it's not just some new idea. Is there a historical theological grounding for it and an exegetical uh, biblical grounding case for it? The appeal that can be made is uh, from Westminster Confession, uh, which we brought up several times here. The Westminster Confession, chapter 7, subsection 1 and 2, particularly subsection 2 there. Others of the Westminster standards can be used to 
get a bigger sense of this idea of republication, it is 7.2 that has the proof texts that lend us to a direction for biblical arguments. So for Westminster 7.2, there are several texts. We're not going to look at all of them, but Galatians 3.10 and Galatians 3.12, the ones that we're looking at, are referred to in Westminster 7.2. And So that's why we're looking at that in particular. There is also, though, Romans 5.12-20 that uh, we may be uh, alluding to as well. So before we begin, I think we should actually read these texts. Mm -hmm. So I will read Galatians 3.10, and I'll read through 12 just so verse 11 doesn't feel sad and left (laughs) out. Galatians 3.10-12, through I'm using the English Standard Version. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Then verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So this is a big text when we're looking at these pro-republication arguments. In fact, uh, perhaps the book that is most well known for making these arguments is titled The Law is Not of Faith. It's a compendium of essays by faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, as well as various others, making their case for the republication view. Now, to point out also of what you just read from Galatians 3, first of all, at the point where in Galatians 3.10, Paul says, so uh, as it is written, he's referring to Deuteronomy 27.26, which says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. It's also a text that's cited in our Heidelberg Catechism and quoted when dealing with our fallen and miserable state. So you're getting this concept here of the lost function in condemning us for our sins. Now, I also want to point out, we had alluded to Westminster Confession 7.2 that is citing these texts. 7.2 says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Proof text there is Galatians 3.12, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, Romans 10.5 and 5.12-20, which also references Leviticus 18.5, do this and live, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience, Genesis 2.17 and Galatians 3.10. And so there is our text that we're particularly looking at here, Galatians 3.10, referring to a condition of perfect and personal obedience. So why would the Westminster Confession, in talking about here in 7.2, the covenant of works, cite a New Testament passage of Galatians 3? So in Galatians 3.10, we're talking about those who rely on the works of the law, because it's basically laying out the standard, and this is where it quotes Deuteronomy of perfection. If you want to be saved, if you want to be justified by the law, you have to keep it perfectly 100% all the time forever. There is no wiggle room there. In that way, if there's no wiggle room and keeping it forever like this, is it then this idea of works functioning like what was required of Adam in the garden for meriting his reward, for meriting, in that case, eternal life? And in this way now, in the republication of the law in the Mosaic administration, a meriting of temporal blessings, typological of eternal blessing and salvation. 
basically, our question with these proof texts in 7.2 is either A, are we referring to this law as the moral law in a general continuity with both covenant of works and the Mosaic economy? So are we speaking of the moral law and merely what is pleasing to God and required of man to follow? So just a basic law concept. Or is there some kind of concept of a formal covenant of works at play in a strict principle of do this and live that is being applied not only to unbelievers, but also to Old Testament believers? A do this idea. And that really is the question. How you answer this is going to answer really where you come down on the republication debate now as we look at this text it's helpful to look at paul look at how he speaks of and uses law and what he's trying to do in the book of galatians because i think that gives us some guidance into how we should consider these issues so the first question is when paul says law here he's talking about works of the law what is he talking about? And when he talks about the law, is he always talking about the same thing? Is he always talking about it in the same way? And the truth of the matter is, as Caleb has already alluded to, and as we've talked about before in this covenant series and in various other things, Paul doesn't always talk about the same law in the same way. Paul makes distinctions that Reformed theology makes uh, that's been historically affirmed between, for instance, moral and civil and ceremonial laws. So in the book of Galatians, what is Paul's primary concern? Paul is concerned with a Judaizing heresy. Now, what is that? So Judaizing, of course, connected to Judaism. Basically, what it boils down to is there were Jewish Christians in Galatia who were trying to persuade Gentile converts that they needed to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They had to observe the ceremonial system. They had to do things like get circumcised. And circumcision is the particular sign, the particular ceremony that draws the most of Paul's ire in Galatians. And so in Galatians, Paul is writing to these churches in Galatia basically telling them that this righteousness by works, this righteousness by ceremonies is inadequate. And not only is it inadequate, it is in fact an undermining and a denial of the gospel because justification is by faith and not by works. Now, this isn't something that only happens or that only comes up in Galatians. For instance, you see it very clearly in Romans, especially the first few chapters dealing with issues of the Jews and Gentiles and and sin with or without the law and then and then justification, how how that comes into that. You also see it in the book of Acts. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 was called to address this Judaizing heresy and those who wanted to put the Christian church back under the yoke of the ceremonial law. And it is against that backdrop that we have to come to Galatians chapter 3. So that has been the historical and traditional understanding of what's going on in Galatians. And it's led to how, for instance, the Westminster Confession, as we've already looked at, uses and interprets this passage. But as with so many things in our modern age, 
uh, as new scholarship takes new looks at these texts, there's emerged some alternative, if you will, perspectives as to what's going on in Galatians. One such view is the so-called new perspective on Paul, which basically tries to say that we have misunderstood Second Temple Judaism and therefore we misunderstand Paul. That Paul's concern is not so much with justification, but is interested in the covenant community and covenant faithfulness. We don't have time to go into that in detail, but that's the ultra simple version of new perspective. On the flip side, there is also approaches to texts like these that tries to rather than understand that Paul may be looking at different aspects of the law, different divisions of the law, different uses of the law. So, for instance, the three uses and three divisions we've talked about before, they instead try to absolutize and basically say that we're talking about the whole law in toto, and it basically makes for a more antinomian interpretation of Galatians 3 that the law as a whole goes away and is no longer binding on the Christians. So the new perspective on Paul sort of opens to a neonomian view where it is okay and it is expected that works have something to do with our justification and with our salvation versus antinomian views that, well, the law is nothing to us. These are the extreme views. These are the views that we need to avoid. In returning to what you're saying there with Paul in addressing the Judaizers, it's interesting that Calvin actually brings up virtually what you are speaking of as well. So in looking at the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 11, in subsection 14, titled, The Works of the Regenerated Can Procure No Justification, Calvin is talking about how the law does not earn you faith. But this is precisely why he is addressing the Judaizers, but we're going to find a distinction from what is being spoken of in this works principle of republication. So here, Calvin is engaging with some concepts of the sophists, that according to them, man is justified by both faith and works provided they are not his own works, but the gifts of Christ and the fruit of regeneration. For they say that Paul so spoke for no other reason than to convince the Jews, who were relying upon their own strength, that they were foolish to arrogate righteousness to themselves, since the Spirit of Christ alone bestows it upon us, not through any effort arising from our own nature. Still, and here is key, they do not observe that in the contrast between the righteousness of the law and of the gospel, which Paul elsewhere introduces, all works are excluded, whatever title may grace them. Here he references Galatians 3, 11 and 12 directly. For he teaches, Paul, that this is the righteousness of the law, that he who fulfilled the law should obtain salvation. But this is the righteousness of faith, to believe that Christ died and rose again, citing Romans 10, verses 5 and 9. Calvin is pointing out here that what the core principle that is at play in Galatians 3, 11 and 12, in the context of Paul addressing the Judaizers, is simply not that there is some kind of operative principle of blessing in here. It's purely just speaking about that righteousness is by Christ. Righteousness is by faith in Christ. It's, it's at face value, he's saying here. Righteousness is of faith. Believing in the merits of another. There is not a hypothetical keeping of the law in this manner to obtain that salvation. 
That is not a means of regeneration. We're speaking of the necessity of fallen man to be regenerated, not to the question of man meriting to earn a reward here. In other words, this isn't considering a principle of how to receive a blessing, temporal or eternal. It's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the inadequacy of the law, our obedience to the law to get us there. Right, exactly. That's where Calvin continues on in these next several subsections. Uh, He gets to uh, subsection 18, though, here. In that exact point you just made, Andrew, the header for subsection 18 is justification, not the wages of works, but a free gift. So already right here, Calvin himself is understanding and reading Paul that Paul is speaking of justification in contrast to any kind of principle of works. So truly, the law is not of faith, but there is not that concept of meriting reward, meriting blessing. And that's precisely why Paul is addressing the Judaizers who think that there is something of the law in which they can merit. Quoting Habakkuk 2.4, Calvin says, It is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the man who does these things shall live in them. Galatians 3, 11 to 12. There's something of simply uh, that the man who does these things shall live in them. uh, uh, Simply a concept of what we could call or what one of my professors would even say is a raw law. It is just law as is. There is already an obligation by virtue of nature, because we are not creator, that creature must pay, must owe towards his God. We have spoken of this earlier in that this is why it is necessary uh, that God voluntarily condescend and to initiate some kind of arrangement where man could even receive a reward in the first place in the garden for obedience. Even if God hadn't voluntarily condescended and initiated this covenant with Adam and spoke of promises and implied threats and curses with it, Adam still would have owed obedience to God. And that is still in play even after the fall. Man still owes total obedience to God. The only difference is now he is entirely incapable of doing so. So Calvin continues... How would this argument be maintained otherwise than by agreeing that works do not enter the account of faith, but must be utterly separated? Note, utterly separated. The law, he says, is different from faith. Why? Because works are required for law righteousness. Therefore, it follows they are not required for faith righteousness. They are not required for faith righteousness. And this is a curious thing if we're to draw a works principle that was originally set forth in the garden. It raises the question, was there such a works principle in the garden? Or if it was simply man was obliged to God? He continues, from this relation, it is clear that those who are justified by faith are justified apart from the merit of works. In fact, without the merit of works. For faith receives that righteousness which the gospel bestows. Now, the gospel differs from the law in that it does not link righteousness to works, but lodges it solely in God's mercy. 
Paul's contention in Romans is similar to this, that Abraham had no occasion to boast, for faith was reckoned as righteousness for him, Romans 4, 2-3. And he adds as confirmation that the righteousness of faith has a place in circumstances where there are no works for which a reward is due. So we come back here to something that I think we've talked about a little bit before, is it seems very odd and it would be very... I think even practically confusing for the people that had to live under such a system where righteousness and ultimately salvation do not come from the law. And yet they are put under this system, this parallel system in this works principle, this typological works principle that they have to do good works in order to keep their place in the land. It just doesn't seem internally consistent with how God has otherwise revealed that he relates to man. We're not lone wolves on this. Uh, We're not rogues um, just coming at this uh, with a critical eye, per se. We are seriously looking to evaluate uh, that uh, what is distinct in this mosaic economy, this, uh, this mosaic administration from, say, the promise made to Abraham. Is there a continuity in this covenant of grace with Abraham? And what is discontinuous? What is different here? Why is it so different? Well, simply we have, uh, first of all, the language of republication seems a little strange. In even if its proponents say that its nature is just a distinct administration of uh, the covenant of grace made to Abraham, the language tends to lend itself to something substantially different, something much more closer to a covenant of works, just without salvation. And in that, it raises a bit of a question of what actually is the role of obedience for a non-salvific merit? What is non-salvific merit? How is there non-salvific merit? What is a a relative righteousness? And and how does all this apply typologically in the kingdom of Israel and the church and the eschatological kingdom? These are all conversations, that uh, ideas that come up with republication. And frankly, if they seem confusing, it's because they are. It, It seems Paul just gets at this notion that the law is not a faith. It is faith that saves you. That's what makes it a covenant of grace and why we find this covenant at Sinai in the context of the covenant of grace. So that's shiny new Bobcast for this week. We thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, bobcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Even if you don't like it, if you want to send us some Luther-esque insults, we'd at least read them. And we hope you'll join us next time. We have a little more work to do on the Mosaic Covenant, and then we will move on to other topics. So until next time, Toad Zines. Toad Zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.